In the modern day church in America, church members argue and dig their heels in on any number of subjects. They range from not liking the tie the pastor wore on a particular Sunday to not allowing homosexuals or other open sinners to darken the doors of their church. We talk about the young couple that comes to church in t-shirts and jeans, or maybe the elderly lady who gets to her chair late every Sunday. Never mind that she needs a walker to get to her seat. We look down at the three kids that are being a bit rambunctious in the aisle, and mom or dad are not immediately reprimanding them. And we ask, what are they doing in our sanctuary anyway? Shouldn't they all be in the Sunday school area? And truth be told, we really don't like the pastor's wife all that much. She just doesn't seem like she's happy enough or involved enough in church things to represent her husband's office good enough. It might be better if she hung out in the nursery and took care of the little kids rather than be up here with us. Is that why Jesus died? We stand and then we sing hymns to our Creator and Savior while our chests puff out in pride that we have shown such great insights into other people and their motives and that we faithfully stood our ground on such, well, on such non-biblical issues. Is that why Jesus died? Is that why he went to the cross? And we discuss our thoughts and our actions with our family as we drive home to sit down to a savory after church meal made up of six, eight, or ten different dishes on the table from which to choose. We talk about all sorts of things, maybe work or ball games or homework, the sunshine, mowing the lawn, or maybe even the need to buy a new pair of shoes. In the meantime, we have left behind us a saddened and discouraged pastor, or worse, perhaps a greatly discouraged sinner, from ever hearing the gospel or ever returning to our church or maybe any church ever again. And is that why Jesus died? We are spoiled. We are self-centered. We are selfish. We are censorious. We are holier than thou. Playing godlike church members exposing ourselves for what we really are. Gross, wretched sinners still needing the grace of God in our daily lives and ever failing to dispense it to those around us. And yet, we feel good about ourselves. Pilate, perhaps hoping to appease the crowd without having to kill Jesus, sent him to be flogged. Here is the King of the Jews, the King of Heaven, the Anointed Son of God, the Messiah, the one for whom all has been created and exists, the only Savior of the world, being taken to be beaten and mocked, and eventually, when the crowd is not happy, crucified. 
Let us be clear on what is going to happen to Jesus. Let us be clear as to the historical facts that took place to our Lord and Savior. Taken from BibleHistory.com, we read this. The Romans would, according to custom, scourge a condemned criminal before he was put to death. The Roman scourge, also called the flagellum, was a short whip made of two or three leather, uh, probably oxide, ropes connected to a handle. The leather ropes were knotted with a number of small pieces of metal, usually zinc and iron, attached at various intervals. The purpose? The purpose would be to quickly remove the skin. BibleHistory.com goes on to say, sometimes the Roman scourge contained a hook at the end and was given the terrifying name Scorpion. The criminal was made to stoop, which would make deeper lashes from the shoulders to the waist. Scourging among the Romans was a very, very severe form of punishment. And contrary to Jewish law, there was no legal limit to the number of blows that could be inflicted onto the skin of the criminal. Deep, deep lacerations, torn flesh, exposed muscles, and excessive bleeding would leave the criminal essentially half dead. Death was often the result of this cruel form of punishment, though it was necessary to try to keep the criminal alive to be brought to public subjugation on the cross. Therefore, the centurion in charge would order the lictors to halt the flogging when the criminal was near death." End quote. From Isaiah 53, 5 and 6, we read these words about the Messiah. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. We read that passage in Isaiah 53 oftentimes during this Passion Week, Good Friday, we don't necessarily dig deep enough into what actually happened to our Lord and Savior, to the very Son of God and the very Son of Man, when he fulfilled this prophecy that Isaiah wrote hundreds of years before Jesus came down from heaven. We say Jesus paid a price. He paid a gory, loathsome, heinous price that was incredibly painful. Jesus now starts his painful walk up the Via Della Rosa, the road of sorrows, whipped to a pulp where his muscle tissue is showing, where his bones are showing, where his skin has been ripped off, where his beard has been torn, where he has been mocked. And now he starts this walk up the Via Della Rosa. The Gospels don't tell us much about this walk, maybe because everyone of that day knew it all too well. Jesus was probably placed in the center of four Roman soldiers. The patibulum, which is the horizontal beam of the cross, 
perhaps as heavy as 100 pounds, was placed directly on his muscle tissue and bones of his shoulders. And so the excruciating pain continues as Jesus dragged his weakened legs and feet along the road. Simon, a Cyrenian Jew, is told to take the patibulum from Jesus and carry it himself. Imagine this. This man coming to Jerusalem for the Passover now finds himself carrying a part of the cross on which the true Passover lamb will be crucified. Now on Calvary, Mark tells us, they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. Jesus refused it. Jesus rejected any form of help for his sufferings as it would be necessary for him to maintain the clarity of his mind all the way to the end, not only to bear the full weight of his suffering, but he will need to be completely coherent when talking to the thieves and speaking to his father before he gives up his spirit. They reach the mount. Simon places the patibulum onto the ground. Jesus, weakened beyond what we might imagine, was pushed on top of it and spikes were driven through his hands. Then here's what happens next. The patibulum with Jesus nailed to it was raised by the soldiers and then it was fastened to the vertical standing wood post. Then Jesus' feet were nailed probably with a single spike. We must never forget this. Jesus is 100% human. He's not 50% God and 50% human. He's 100% God and 100% human. Every type of pain that can be inflicted on a human being, if inflicted on Jesus, he feels exactly the same agony. He feels exactly the same excruciating pain that you or I would. So now, with Jesus nailed to the cross, he begins to push himself up in a struggle simply to inhale and exhale. Push up, his body tells him, using the spike through his feet for leverage then relax. Push up and then relax. Push up again and then relax. It is a natural yet painful mental and physical thing that takes place as the body tries to remain alive. There he is hanging from this Roman cross, twisting in pain as his body prepares to die. Our Kent Hughes in his commentary preached the word says this, the cross reveals the love of God as nothing else in the universe could. We must passionately weave this truth into the fibers of our consciousness for our own soul's health. We must never fall into the delusion of thinking that the suffering was not as great for Jesus because of the fact that he was God. He did it as a man among men, yet his pain was alleviated by nothing. If anything, it was heightened by his very own soul's health. 
And this says nothing of the ultimate pain that our sin bearer will find and experience as the wrath of God is poured out on him. The realness of the cross says to us that we are loved. Jesus was not only fully man, but he was also fully God. And before he commends his spirit to the Father, before he says it is finished, before he said that he thirsted, before he asked his Father why he is being forsaken, before he told the one thief on the cross that because of his faith he would soon be with him in paradise, Jesus speaks these words first. Father, forgive them. For they know not what they do. Knowing he was about to die, knowing he had to die for the plan of salvation to take place, knowing that he was about to receive justified, exploding wrath from his beloved Father for all the sins of the world would shortly be placed on him. He speaks to his Father in his first words from the cross and asks his father, the holy and righteous one, who will never have sinned before him to forgive those that nailed him to a tree, because the love of Jesus never fails. The love of Jesus never ends. Jesus will live and die these words from Deuteronomy. And if a man has committed a crime punishable by death and he is put to death and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him on the same day for a hanged man is cursed by God. And now he is about to give up his spirit. His work on the cross is about to be complete, but it is not quite over yet. But even now, we see love poured out, and we see unimagined grace as he hangs there. And soon, we will see incredible glory, the glory of the one and only. We must be reminded. We remain so self-centered, so selfish, so angry, so conceited, so censorious. Our hearts remain dark and our actions are too often best suited for the nighttime. Might we better remember the words, turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of this earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. As he hangs there, if you were to look up, it is you that flashes across his loving mind. It is you he is thinking about. He had one purpose for hanging on that cross. It was for you.